0: Constructing Modern Knowledge podcast. On June 30th, 2020, Dr. Gary Steger was invited to be the closing keynote speaker at the MakerEd Virtual Unconference. This is a recording of that keynote address entitled Summer Camp Computing or Nostalgia for the Future.
1: pleasure to introduce Dr. Gary Steger. Since 1982, Dr. Gary Steger has helped schools around the world embrace computational technology as an intellectual laboratory, a vehicle for self-expression, and a window into the world of possibilities for amplifying the potential of each student in preparation for an uncertain future. He is the co-author of Invent to Learn, Making and Tinkering and Engineering in the Classroom, and the founder of the Constructing Modern Knowledge Institute in the summer. Um, I can personally say that I first met Gary when I attended Constructing Modern Knowledge in 2014, and the conversations I had there have greatly influenced what I have done in K-12 through schools ever since. Without further ado, Gary Steger.
0: Well, thanks, JD. It's great to be here. Um, I'm reminded of the words of my immortal hero. Um, Oh, I just Don Rickles. He's such a hero. I couldn't. Remember, I lost track of him. Don Rickles, who like to say, "I'm not here for the money. I'm I do it for the love of you people." Um, so I'm going to try some some different technology today, some new toys that I got, and an attempt to to inspire you and send you off into the uncertain summer with some ideas to think about. Um, and kind of wax nostalgic a little bit. So. I'm going to bring up my slides and I want to talk about summer camp computing or nostalgia for the future. I'm going to share some personal stories and, and talk about how I think they shaped my current work and my thinking about the, the time in which we find ourselves. So a lot of my work is about democratizing computer programming. Well I think schools should democratize all experiences. I think that's the purpose of school, to introduce children to things they don't yet know they love and computer programming is one of those things um, there's lots of reasons to learn to program we can make things we make things work we can express ourselves develop habits of mind solve problems concretize abstractions contextualize mathematics programming mirrors the writing process in various design cycles you can do it by yourself or with others it's hard fun and perhaps the smallest concern is that it can lead to some sort of employment or a well-paying job i think the reason why we should teach every kid the program is that it's the new liberal art It gives kids agency over an increasingly complex technologically sophisticated world and i've been thinking about this for about 45 years because in 1975 i attended scott colfax junior high school in wayne new jersey where every seventh grader was to take a nine week required to take a nine week computer programming class with mr jones um, this was in a rotation between baking a souffle and making a tie rack, you know, it was one of those electives that was mandatory for all kids to participate in. Let me say the year again, 1975. Mr. Jones was a great teacher. He had to have been because he had scarce resources. There was only one or two teletypes connected to a mainframe timeshare system somewhere else. And for the first time in my life at 12 years old, I felt smart. I felt intellectually capable. I felt creatively expressive because we didn't know it was impossible we thought anything was possible we pulled each other up by our bootstraps we challenged one another there was a several year period during which um, we had only seen software written by someone we actually knew i remember getting to high school and being shocked to find a manual for a piece of software and we looked at it like a coke bottle and the gods must be crazy what is this manual thing um and so for the last two years of junior high school and all way through high school, I did an awful lot of computer programming. I graduated in 1981 thinking that was fun, but nobody will ever use a computer again. Um, and I went to music school. I had a scholarship to attend Berklee College of Music. And the year is important again when you think about 1981 because I left thinking I would never use a computer again. Within a year, everyone I knew owned one. Um, and when I returned home Christmas time, my mother said, get a summer job. And I went out on interviews to be a music counselor at some summer camps, and no one would hire me because I didn't play the guitar. And I stumbled upon a camp that said, um, we want to start a computer program. we see in your resume. You've done some computer stuff. And I hadn't done any computer stuff in almost a year. He had a, he had a mini computer in his office and said, write a program to do something. And I wrote it, and it worked and at 18 years old i had a staff and a budget and i was considered senior leadership at one of the first computer programs in a day camp anywhere in the world and all of my work is 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 centered around the question that seymour Papert began asking in 1968 which was does the computer program the child or the child program the computer at a time of accusations of fake news and confusion around the coronavirus and all the sorts of decisions we need to make, the ability to to look at a problem from different perspectives, to put myself in someone else's shoes, to swim around in the beaker with the molecules, with the code, Um, over habits of mind that I developed that have served me very well every day of my life, whether it's trying to hack through an airline voicemail system to get a human on the other end of the phone or to get my car out of a locked parking garage, the ability to think systemically, systematically, computationally, has served me quite well and it and it's fun as, and it's and it's led to a lot of, of, of great things as well. Um, so I'm feeling a little nostalgic in this period of quarantine because this week actually there's two anniversaries. One is the anniversary of me beginning to, to lead this program of um, computer programming as one of those required electives. Um, inside a, a day camp and suffer in suffer New York called Deer Kill Day Camp which is still in operation and in, and in fact is actually running this summer um, and then the second anniversary is that 30 years ago this week I began working in the first two schools in the world where every kid had a computer where every kid had a laptop computer this was at a time in, in Australia where I didn't know most adults who had a laptop, but I stumbled upon these schools where they were giving 5th, 6th, 7th graders and eventually everyone laptops. And so within a couple of years there were 100,000 laptops in the hands of Australian kids. And the entire point of, of having a personal computer was computing. Was being able to take the time to work on meaningful projects. To program in at the time logo writer. to And to do so across the curriculum. And so there's there's lessons that I learned from from all these experiences, including that boys and girls can enjoy programming. When we gave a kid, kids a taste of it at the summer camp and then allowed them to return when they wanted to, um, which incidentally, my computer lab was a horse trailer. And we had originally, we had VIC-20s and the next year we got Commodore 64s and one disk drive and this thing called an octopus, which was a bunch of wires, like old telephone cables that you could connect to a dozen computers and someone stood at the, at the floppy drive and turned the knob when you were ready to hit return and load the program into yours. Um, the program was such a success the first year that they said, well, if you come back next year, we'll build you a larger space. And when I returned, they had put a porch on the horse trailer. Um, so that was the addition. But in a non-coercive environment, we found that girls participated equally to boys. And what we found when when every kid was provided with a laptop, it eliminated the, the conflict over fighting over 10 minutes of computer time. There's no eight or nine-year-old girl who's going to fight over 10 minutes of computer time. In fact, the first laptop school in the world was a girl's school. And and in that school, we had over 1,000 kids programming across the curriculum. Programming is, is intellectually re- and creatively rewarding. When you don't know what's impossible, you think anything is possible. Um, Programming is a way of matching kids' remarkable capacity for intensity with a task that's up to the, that challenge. Um, it, it's, it gives us a context for debugging, which is an essential skill. Um, it's a material with which we can make ideas and other things and make other things go. We, we recognize that you can, the kids and their teachers can learn and program across the curriculum that quality work takes time. And this is a really important idea. I wrote an article a couple months ago called what's, the, what's Your Hurry? Talking about the need to slow down. If you teach a kid in some block-based environment or logo-based language, forward and right, they could draw anything in the universe. They can become Van Gogh with that. We, but they need the time to develop those skills. And I was thinking about how camp has changed from when I worked in one in the early 80s to today. In the early 80s, you had two options as a parent, four weeks or eight weeks, not one hour or a half a day or or a day or two days, um, where you could actually form a social network. That's why people who went to camp as kids from previous generations are so attached to the kids they went to camp with. And you could get good at something. You could grow by leaps and bounds over that period of time. And I think actually that programming is the best justification for having computers in schools. Much of what we do with computers in schools is really kind of trivial and and hard to defend. Um, Now, based on my early experience, I've often wondered under what conditions could recreational computing return. When I was in high school, I used to ride my bike to the next town over several miles to buy a copy of Creative Computing Magazine. And then I would run home or run back to school, more pointedly and I would type in hundreds of lines of code of someone else's program and see if it worked, and it never did. And it was either my typos or there was a problem with the program, and you either fixed it or you, or you moved on. Um, but David All, who published Creative Computing, was nice enough to answer some emails of mine a few years ago, and I asked him just for fun, do you have any idea what the circulation of Creative Computing was? And he said, well, at their peak in 1984 they had 400,000 subscribers. 1984, there were 400,000 people who, who, who subscribed to a um, hobbyist programming magazine. So I've, I've wondered under what conditions could hobbyist programming return? And it turned out I thought the maker movement was that opportunity. That suddenly programming had, had a context, had some meaning, had some relevancy. And people were able to program the things that they made. However, being about eight years or nine years into the maker movement, it's occurred to me that we, we could make things with atoms, but we've left the bits behind again. That, that we're making a lot of stuff, but we're not making a lot of stuff think. We're not making a lot of stuff interact with the world. We're not making a lot of stuff go. This manifests itself... In the conversations I have with teachers on a regular basis where they come up to me all excited and say, we do a little scratch. Well, come back when you've done a lot of scratch. Um, you know, you really benefit from computer programming when you've stared at a, at a bug for a couple dozen hours. When, you, when you've worked on something to the point where you can't sleep at night, where you have to take a break and walk away from it, and then the solution emerges and you rush back to, to solve it. Um, I got busted in 10th grade for taking the hall pass to go debug a computer program. Just kind of humiliating at 15 years old, um, but I just, the solution to the pro- problem I had was burning inside of me. I couldn't sit in Mr. Ancora's biology class for one more second. So, Can I go to the bathroom? And I got the pass and I ran to the other end of the school building and fired up these teletypes that kind of shook the school and, and got caught running out of the classroom to debug a computer program that matches the level of intensity that kids have, and yet they rarely have the, an outlet for that kind of experience. Our goal is fluency. We want, we want kids to become good at something. We want them to be able to paint with it. They want, we want them to be able to draw with it, dance with it. If I want to go back to the camp analogy, there was nothing more important to, to parents than their kids learning to swim. And you could learn to swim in four or eight weeks. You can't learn to swim in one hour or in a 42-minute class period. And I'm also reminded of the feeling of play and the creative expression associated with arts and crafts and the continuum, the cultural continuum that's associated with that. So I'm suggesting we go back to camp a little bit. Because if we go back to camp, we can recognize that while most technology in schools compares badly to clay or paint, computer programming doesn't. This is a a medium with which we can make spectacular things. And while we talk a lot about kids making computer games, the games seem to be quite redundant um, and derivative, which is okay. But they're also of a class. They're usually things bumping into other things, right? Um, And yeah, if we go old school, we recognize that there's all kinds of games you could play. And, I go, and when I think about my early days of computing, we had tennis and boxing and football and basketball and Star Trek and no graphics. And if you want to run a tennis game or baseball without graphics, you have to deal with logic and rules and simulation and probabilistic behavior. And what my friend Tom Snyder, the software developer, former educator, used to call the third law of software design, which is if you're writing software for kids, they wanna be randomly screwed on a regular basis. So if you have a shift, you have to throw pirates in from time to time. But, but that logic and probabilistic behavior and rules and simulation are really powerful ideas that resonate and have a home in the traditional curriculum as well. So I, I'm, I just wanna, be nostalgic a little bit I did some research um, in the mid-1970s David All published his first version of a book called Basic Computer Games I've got copies of Basic Computer Games and more Basic Computer Games they're still widely available on Amazon and in fact in the, the URL that I'll share with you at the end of the presentation you can download PDF versions of these um, these books in the mid 70s sold a million copies it so 45 years ago a million people bought books on how to program computers for fun not just books they bought a specific book but in that quantity this is kind of mind-boggling you know and the the contents page looks like this and it has it has computery games like like nim and homurabi and stuff and bagels but it also has tennis and blackjack and, and poker and roulette. And if you think about challenging kids to write those kinds of games, there's a ton of mathematics of computational thinking of, of logic, of, of, of all sorts of phenomena that, that, that can enrich their, their thinking. And the layout was, you know, as you can see, kind of incredibly elaborate, um, hand-typed. Now, let's talk about the classroom we go forward to 1980s, my friend Dan Watt published Learning with Logo. Learning with Logo is, you know, this thick. He sold over 100,000 copies of this. So if you think about 1985, which is what, 35 years ago, um, and there being very few computers in schools, and yet there were 100,000 teachers who owned the book on how to teach computer programming to kids, this should empower us to think we can do better today or tomorrow, we can do some of this again. In fact, this is a 1983-84 issue of The Computing Teacher. The Computing Teacher was ISTE's magazine before whatever it is today. I couldn't actually find a copy because it was behind a paywall and my my ISTE membership lapsed a week ago, um, but I just I want to read you a few of the articles that were in this issue in 1983-84. A cure for recursion: helping students with with recursion, teaching strategies. Recursion, recursion: a recursion excursion with a surprising discovery. Problem spaces in an in an object-oriented environment. This is what teachers were doing with computers. Thirty seven years ago so our expectations have have really been lowered and we've got all these amazing languages now we could be using that are block-based that are accessible that that, that allow us to make things that we can control we, we can make physical things we can make powerful expressive things we can make sophisticated games that start with the logic and the rules and the and a probabilistic behavior, and we can add fancy graphics to them. We can share them on the web. We can you know, distribute them in lots of different ways. We can 3D print them. So we can make use Turtle Art to design elaborate, elaborate tiling patterns and 3D print stamps and then use that with ceramic clay and end up with exquisite works of art that bring mathematics to art and the, the, the digital to the analog. Teacher in one of my workshops in Texas saw this and went home and shared turtle art with her kids and they decided to make slow feed dog ball design because right? apparently after millions of years of evolution your dogs are eating too quickly and we need to slow them down and apparently piss them off at the same time and, and she wrote to me and said the geometry and the problem solving the debugging her kids were engaged in was remarkable so much so that they convinced the local mathnasium which is you know like a you know, being, being sentenced to Gitmo, um, to actually teach turtle art and programming, and to buy a three D printer. You know, you can use the same software to create literal express artistic expressions. We could go on a nature walk, looking for inspiration for computer programs we might want to write. This was something that I learned about when I was on a tour of. Kensington neighborhood in London. That before people had house addresses, rich people had these fan lights, which were semicircles with or, ornate glass inside, metal and glass. And if you were rich enough, you gave someone a card with a picture of your fan light. And when they were looking for your house, that's how they would know where to visit. I thought, well, that's a great programming activity in Scratch or Links or Snap. Um, sylvia and i have a big empty wall in our living room for the last five years since we remodeled and we've tried to figure out what to put there and we've seen on some real estate shows that if people are using canvases with polka dots on them Well, why buy a expensive one if we can make our own but if i say to kids make a piece of polka dot art i don't have to tell them what the dimensions are or how many dots are in it or how to organize the dots They'll start saying, oh, hey, I got two blue ones next to each other. They'll come up with a solution to not have two blue ones next to each other. Maybe it'll be random. Maybe it'll be deliberate. Maybe they'll move the dots around. Maybe they'll make different kinds of patterns. Maybe they'll overlap the dots. Maybe they'll change the dots to splats. Maybe they'll have hollow dots and solid dots. Maybe they'll decide, as someone did at Constructing Modern Knowledge a few years ago, that they want to make Schuber, which is a pair of shoes that are programmed that when you click the heels, they call a cab. And this isn't some fanciful, you know, kabuki theater version of an invention convention at a school or a science fair where a kid imagines that they're gonna someday there might be something like this. That day is today. You can make Schubert. The technology exists for doing it. Or the teacher, you're gonna lose the sound here. Um, but she made a, a fortune teller that's programmed in Snap and it speaks and it tells your fortune. This isn't a robot truck designed to kill some other school's robot truck. It's something beautiful. It's 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 a it's a work of sculpture and of cybernetics and of computer programming. Or one of my favorite projects, again from CMK, where Kelly, who, had, who has been to CMK five times during her fourth year, knew that we expected and we had, we welcomed and we embraced nutty projects, and she said she wanted to make an animated Marie Antoinette wig, as you do. And they proceeded to do this elaborate paper cutting and folding to make this robot wig that has birds that fly around. And when you tilt your head, the bird sounds chirp. And when you blow into a straw, 3D printed bees are shot out of your, your garden. Um, and, and I love this project. So it's whimsical, so it's deeply personal, because it's creative. And it involves all of the powerful ideas that one can get from computing, from computation, from computer programming. So, in closing, I think as we, we're thinking about going back to school, and a lot of people are engaged in these discussions, my advice for your sanity and for your blood pressure and for your health is is resign from all these committees. We don't know nothing. Um, we, things are going to change a million times between now and when school starts. Chances are, schools are going to do the worst, choose the worst possible option anyway. Um, so the near future is uncertain, and if we do have to go back online, either full time or part time, those of you who are maker educators have had the problem of, of a supply chain, right? Of how do you get the stuff in the hands of all the kids? Well, the good news is that that um, the best maker space is between your ears. Computer programming is an incredibly rich makerspace. This is an opportunity for kids to get really good at it because it runs on everything now. You can be running scratch on almost any kind of device or Snap or Lynx, and kids have nothing but time so they can work on really elaborate projects that take more than 42 minutes. So I think as we, we look towards the future, um, there's a really important role for programming to play. and I think it's been neglected by the maker community. I think it's a form of making even though it's not tangible. I remember Seymour Papert being asked the question about concrete versus abstract and him talking about how people get Piaget wrong. And the example he used to use was, if you can draw a triangle in your head with a pencil, is that I'm sorry. If you can draw a triangle in your head, is that concrete or abstract? And people will argue about that. But surely the intellectual construct, epistemology of abstract versus concrete isn't based on the pencil being here. If you can make the model in your head, it's just as concrete. And computer programming is an incredibly rich environment context for doing that. So, um, there's a lot of resources at slash masterclass that you can have access to, including links to the things that Conrad Wolfram talked about during my ask me anything session this morning and some challenges that need pro that need to be converted you know I would love if any teachers are interested in I would love to collaborate on making modern language versions of things like this let's start with these games let's figure out which ones we can do in scratch some we can't do there's an article called "The modest proposal on the website where I say hey how about if you you buy one of a couple scratch books that I like for kids And you make that their text in English class or in reading for a month or two and tell the kids that they they have to read the book and and create all the projects. That's a sort of close reading that everyone's talking about, right? But they're gonna be dealing with powerful ideas of mathematics and science and problem solving and develop habits of mind as well. So there are a lot of opportunities there. So I thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm happy if you wanna, I I can stick around a few minutes. If anybody has any questions, I'd be, Glad to take them so thanks again for inviting me and try to get some rest this summer and take care of yourself because we don't know what the future holds thanks
1: folks thank you so much Gary that was amazing and I can't think of a better way to close out this conference um, if people are willing to hang around we have time to ask Gary some questions he's willing to answer them so I say let's take advantage of that I know people may have other things to do but uh, but uh, were you please. just sick of zoom yeah I think I uh, I can't decide if I'm sick of it or I'm starting to love it. I don't know. <laughs> right. Or you've you just got Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, 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 Stockholm Syndrome, exactly. So speak up, people, if you yeah, if you have a question for them, this is the time.
2: Um, Gary, I was thinking yes. today I'm doing this, you know, micro bit class and middle school kids. And hey, I've got a couple of kids that are really into making and they're doing it their own, like the little games that you just move the dot around and stuff. Sure. And what you're saying is just so is resonating so much because they've been two days just totally plugged into like working out these ideas with the sprites and it's very much about that it's not about the bells and whistles so much they're moving a dot around a 15 you know led matrix but uh it, it just resonates a lot anyway hey, hey
0: one, one of the most sophisticated things i've seen done with the micro bit was i had a teacher in one of my workshops who made pong on it and had it pl- had it going between two micro bits
2: yeah i had a student do that last year not pong but a similar kind of thing she invented the game and it was kind of wacky yeah. middle school kid and all but it was great because it went with the two worked off of each other but anyway just the fact that this a lot of times with the micro bit we have I, I do have a thing of going big when actually going small can be more meaningful and there's a lot of programming with the micro bit that we forget about
0: so, so let me share a, share a story, something that happened to you know, our friend Angela in Bologna. Sylvia and I visited her school about six months ago and there was a kid in her class who had a really clever idea. I had never seen anyone do it before. I had never heard anyone th- think about it before. He said, I wanna be able to, on the micro bit, hit a button to cycle through the letters of the alphabet. So if he hit the B button, it would go A B C D E F G, right? And and then if he hit the left button, it would go it would go backwards. But if he hit both buttons together, it would lock the letter in. And send. Uh, oh no! I, uh, let me go back a bit. You could change this. So he would, if he hit the left button, it would lock the letter in. And if he hit both buttons, it would send the collection of letters to another microbit. So he was making a, a text-based walkie-talkie with with one micro bit and one you know with and two buttons which is a lovely programming challenge and i knew he could do it and and i also knew because i had a lot of experience programming and programming with kids that i i thought of a bug that i knew he was going to encounter that he hadn't thought of yet which was A string of letters is lovely, but it's hard to parse as a human, right? So if you get a paragraph of text with no spaces in it, it's not so great a message. So he had to figure out how do I deal with a space? And how do you represent a space in ASCII code to be able to, you know, you're converting a value, you're converting a number to a letter anyway to make this thing go, so what's what's space going to be? And I left him and he was about 90% done with the project. And a few weeks later, Angela contacted us and said, his friends are working on a Lego project and he doesn't want to do the thing anymore. And, and Sylvia and I had an interesting disagreement. Her advice was, yeah, that's okay. He did a good job already. He got like 90% of the way there. And and people think I'm the laissez-faire guy. And I said, tell him to finish. Um, he has my email address if he gets stuck. Angela can help him. There's probably other kids in the class who can help him. He's not alone. And... He's fully capable of working on this project and working with his friends on the Lego project. But most importantly, there's an unbelievable sense of satisfaction and accomplishment that, that's, that's associated with finishing the job and bending the technology to your will and getting it to do what you didn't think you were able to get it to do. And I wanted the kid to have that sense of euphoria. I wanted him to experience that because that's the kind of thing that's that fueled me the rest of my life that I knew that if I stayed at it long enough, I could make something really good out of this, that I didn't have to just go ah, and walk away. And and so it was a really interesting discussion about, about teaching, about learning theory, about, you know, sometimes it's okay to say, yeah, yeah, you got about as far as you could go, but, if you have a little experience and you know the kid is really close to the finish line, it's worth helping them get to the finish line. And for kids who finish too quickly, you can always ask, why does it fall over? How would you make it better? How would you make it faster, smaller, etc." Other, Other questions? Everything's gone quiet for me. Everyone's muted. Gary,
2: what materials would you recommend if you had to give students like if you were limited to a shoe box yeah. and what and what you could give to students um mm-hmm. what like i would put a micro bit in there and yeah. some things but what materials would you put in there that you think would be essential for making um, yeah, at yeah. home if you were going to send kids home with a shoe box of stuff
0: uh my so my my cheap kit would be a micro bit go, you know, so it's the battery box and the cable and a microbit um, and I would add to it two 10mm LEDs I like a green one and a red one or two colors of, of the large LED um, four alligator clips that's the cheap kit the, the, the next level kit I like the um, neopixel strips with the double uh, with the alligator clips on them that Adafruit cells, because then you can get into all sorts of sequencing and pattern things and stuff that's really crazy with lighting up a big. And you can light up your bedroom with it if you want, but but you could also deal with Fibonacci series or Otter even or randomness or have lights chase down a down a, a strip and back. Or change speed, etc. So I like I like that NeoPixel strip that has the alligator clips on it because that, that connects to the micro:bit really easily. If you wanted to, you could throw in uh, a small speaker, but they could also just use he- headphones with the two of the alligator, the four alligator clips you throw in the kid. and I would go in a you know a nice small envelope. And you know, I, I mean, I I've run a bunch of family workshops, and the, they changed dramatically when we can send the parent and the kid home with the stuff. When we gave every kid and uh, when we gave every kid a microbit Go kit, um, they started teaching the kids who weren't there. And when I, when I said, "Hey, I'm going to come back to visit school, your school in two weeks, a hundred percent of the kids remembered to bring their micro bit back to school and they brought friends with them to lunch to learn some more stuff or to ask you questions. So you know that's a game changer. And again, when I was in Italy, And I was hearing over and over again, we can't afford this, we're a poor country. I started using a currency, a unit of currency that they understood. Um, You know, a a micro bit is half the price of a pack of cigarettes or a third of the price of a pack of cigarettes. I mean, it's a rounding error. It's unconscionable in the richest country in the history of mankind that every kid can't have a laptop and a cello. I just won't accept it anymore. As I said, this is—I'm doing this thirty years of laptops in schools. We—we've done it, we've done it, in, we've done it in, in Harlem. We've done it in, in indigenous communities. There's a half million hundred-dollar laptops being used in Peru during COVID nineteen. Um, It's—it's just—it's just a matter of will, and it's never been more than a couple percent of student spending to give every kid a laptop. And as Seymour Papert and Cynthia Solomon said in 1971. If every child were to be given access to a computer, computers would be cheap enough to give every kid access to a computer. So we shouldn't cheap out on it, but it's it's, you know, we should be able, to, we should be willing to spend what we spend on dry cleaning soccer uniforms, on giving a kid a computer they could use for four or five years. And and like I said, it it, it you need to get stuff distributed to kids. If you can't get them physical stuff, programming is great. There's there's a billion things. you Hey, Karen. Hey, did you see my shirt?
2: i'm noticing the bucky shirt i pointed it out it's
0: it's the fourth of july one wait i gotta turn around for you (laughs) i was hoping i'd see the back of you um it says says freedom in bucky's or something Uh, i just wanted
2: to say thank you um hello and i'm glad that sharon put the what you said about the kit uh the items are now in the chat for posterity so i appreciate it thank you sharon
0: Okay. Anyone else? I do have a quick question, if I may. Sure, sure, absolutely. Who? Oh, you're at the Blue School. Yeah, yeah, I've been to CMK a couple of times, and uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Got, you kick-started my work here, so I appreciate that. Oh, that's really lovely. I haven't been here in a million years, but back in the day. Yeah, well, I won't be there in a few more, it looks like. <laughs> uh, <laughs> We're definitely. I... <laughs> and, and to that point,
1: um, I think a lot of maker educators are being asked to do screen reduced screen activities and you know I'm gonna lean into the programming I think you've reinforced that for me here and I'm curious if there are some physical computing environments, platforms, units of study that, that particularly appeal to you?
0: If I can only buy one thing I'd buy Hummingbird Robotics kids they're just great. It it's still, uh, lets you do everything. still screen based though right? I mean okay. your kids are... Well most of it's physical. Yeah. Okay. Most, most of it's physical with a little bit of programming. Um, I, I mean, you know, not all screens are created equally. There's a difference between how you're using a screen or how I'm talking about using a screen in kids in a way a parent uses one to shut their kid up at Applebee's, right? Now we need we need to be able to differentiate that. I, I also think going back to whatever craziness we're going going to go back to, um, a lot of your spaces are being taken over because they need to spread kids out and. and you and and music and art aren't important right um and if you're going to serve on committees i think you should take a really militant stand about this most of the stuff that school does could be shifted online read a chapter answer questions talk to each other all the blah blah stuff the thing that makes school viable that makes school essential is the things you can't do on a screen and you can't do in your bedroom and and I would like some schools to really consider. How about we start work backwards from how do we make orchestra go into them? How do we make sure that those are the things that happen on campus, and the other stuff takes a backseat? So I think it's in some ways we should you know we should start saying no, um, but I I. And, you know, I always said the best maker is between your ears. In, in Invent to Learn, we explicitly said don't make a makerspace. I know it, there's this stuff that's dangerous and it needs to be secure and it might need to be ventilated, but there's so much you can do with that with stuff that's in that shoe box, that making a special place where the kids visit every two weeks for 40 minutes, like a trip to Colonial Williamsburg, um, wasn't the point. And we should recognize I'll I'll give you the good news and then the bad news. There's some, the the whole maker movement thing, the whole maker space thing has has a staying power. It's stuck in a way that most interventions in schools haven't. And the reason why I say that is one of my mentors in Australia, a wise old educator taught me that all innovations in schools have a five-year lifespan. Good, bad, and different doesn't matter if it's a terrible idea or a good idea it doesn't matter the first year or two you and your colleagues are good soldiers you really put your best foot forward and you really try to make make the thing have a go and by the third year you got a little wind in your sails and you know you're comfortable and you're, you're doing it and around year four or five a stiff wind blow, breeze blows by your principal changes a parent says but what about the test or We're doing, you know, shmimby-pemby phonics, and and then the thing explodes. And by my watch, the maker movement in schools is seven, eight years old, which means it's outlived its natural lifespan. And so, you know, bully for you, that's fabulous. But what happens when they want to turn what you're doing into the next whatever stupid idea people have? Um, so this is, this is a moment for, for you to really assert that what you do is important. And and as we go back to school, we should be figuring out a way to make sure what you do can be done safely. And there's not less of it, there's more of it. I mean, I imagine that the, that the, the rationale behind less screen is because the kids are staring at screens all the time and they're doing mindless stuff, right? So less of that, more of the other. And I think you, I think you can communicate that to parents. And I think when they have, if you can create an opportunity for them to have the kind of experience you want to create for your kids, it's easy to change their minds about that. So I, I really think you're gonna, I, you're gonna need to, you're gonna need to stand your ground a little bit, because you know Sylvia and I are getting these crazy. We're getting phone calls fairly regularly now. People, who are on these committees at schools, and they're, you know, they're being pushed out of their space that they fundraised for. That you know you know and, and and they're immediately disposable and you know sadly once they get pushed out of their space they'll be disposable too uh, you know again let me use one more camp analogy the summer camp i worked at which is i think it's like 70 years old now family run the kid i used to teach now runs it uh third generation in the family they're opening this week they're going to run full camp for five eight hundred kids or something state of new york said camps are okay Oh by the way, they said day camps are okay, sleepaway camps where you can quarantine kids remotely and, and there is no chance they're getting COVID. That you can't do. But you can have them come and go with lots of other strangers. Anyway, so it gives you a sense of how stupid this is. But but they've decided they've just put tents up on the on the grounds for all the things that used to be inside. So arts and crafts now will be under a tarp because there seems to be some consensus that being outside is pretty safe. So they didn't say, we're, we're putting a bullet in the head of the, the art teacher. They said, we're gonna teach art, that it's an important part of the experience. So I, I think that you know, it'd be nice if, if we started having those kinds of discussions in schools about how do we make the things go that, that make us human, that, that engage kids most intensely. Um, that add the most value to our school. Those of you who are in independent schools need to be able to show some value. And I assure you, the parents have seen the crap the kids do in the other classes, and they're going to start wondering why they're paying forty grand for it. Right? They they see something different in what happens with with in your classroom, in your space, or the music teacher space. That's that's the stuff that builds memories. That's the stuff the kid goes home and talks about that's that you know when a parent says i can't even i can't even do my second graders work they're not saying i'm stupid they're not being literal about it they're saying thank god i don't have to do that shit <laughs> i'm through it already right i i can't believe this crap that's coming home and you know to the extent that my kid has to do it i guess they have to do it but when when dirt economic security gets a little less stable a little more fragile and they have to start making a decision about where they're going to spend their money. They're, they're going to start asking, "Why is it that we're writing a check to this school?" And and so I, you know, private school is going to really seriously need to step up in that regard. And I think stick to the things that make you make you exciting and make you different and make you help you create memories for kids.
1: Well, thank you so much, Gary. Well, that was really wonderful. <laughs>
0: We hope you enjoyed this Constructing Modern Knowledge podcast. Our theme music is Jazz Impromptu by Brian Lynch, HolisticMusicWorks.com. For podcasts and additional inspiration, check out our website, live.constructingmodernknowledge.com. Be sure to visit cmkpress.com. That's cmkpress.com for books by creative educators for creative educators.